0: to you all. And let's go to Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. And uh, Mark chapter 15. <clears throat> there we go. And I'm trying to get my viewer up here the way it should be. There we go. All right. And we're looking at uh, the death of Christ. We have been in the Gospel of Mark now for a while and we're nearing the the ending chapters or the end of chapter 15 and also into chapter 16 and last week we ended looking at the scene that leads to calvary or that place of the skull and we watched uh, as we read through scripture there as jesus was taken he was uh, the cross was placed upon his back and as he went up to the place where he would be crucified there they compelled a man named simon right And we kind of ended last week talking about that, how Simon helped uh, by being compelled anyways to take that piece of the cross with Jesus or for Jesus and to walk. And yet Jesus is the one that would bear the cross, really. And uh, this account is it's written here according to Mark. We come to this and really we see one of the more familiar passages of scripture most people have heard of Jesus Christ who have heard of Jesus Christ have heard of his death his crucifixion the way that's interpreted throughout the world uh, is a little different some would even among christians look at it as uh, a one time finished act because that's what the scripture says it was a one time he had to die once for all others say well no we have to somehow pay for our own sins and continue to do that and and that's not correct and then there are others who will not accept the Christian message because of the death of Christ. It's a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block because it's a shameful death. And uh, certainly if God was to send somebody, he wouldn't do so uh, sending a a shameful uh, death to that person. And so there's a lot of people that today, billions of people that stumble at that, uh, thinking that it certainly could could not have been Jesus or part of God's plan to have someone die such a shameful death. We come to this chapter, the section here, and we talk about the crucifixion. And let's begin reading in verse 25. Now it was the third hour that they crucified him, and the inscription of his accusation was written above. The king of the Jews. Uh, with him, were they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. And so the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered when the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. And then someone ran and filled a sponge filled or full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so when a centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this, and breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. And there were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less, and of Joseph, and uh, Selim, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, again we open up the word of God. We ask that you would now open it to us, that we may receive it. And we ask, Lord, that as we uh, look at this, the death of Christ, that you would help us to greater appreciate that and also understand that without the death of Christ, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so we thank you for that truth today. And we rest in that, in Jesus' name, amen. We come to this scene and uh, the gospel of Mark along with the other gospel writers are very specific in certain details. Not all of them include all the details. Some include extra details, some less, but they all focus on the death of Christ uh, during this time. And by the way, there's no discrepancy. Some argue that actually this very first phrase it says now it was the third hour, uh, that is uh, an, a reference of time of when the crucifixion took place. On the Jewish clock back in the first century during this time, uh, the clock began at 6 a.m. So the third hour of the day, of the daylight, was three hours later. So 9 a.m. is when this takes place. At the sixth hour would be noon, all right? And the ninth hour would be when Jesus gave up his ghost, he gave up his spirit And when he did so, and so Jesus hangs there suspended on this cross for many hours, just to understand that. In John's gospel, by the way, it says that he stood it before Pilate at the sixth hour. And some have used that as a discrepancy, saying, how is it that John got it wrong, or Mark got it wrong, or the other gospel writers? Actually, the first three gospel writers record it similar to Mark. It's called the Synoptic Gospels. And then John, which was written later in the first century, records it as the sixth hour. And he's simply using the Roman civic time. And the Romans began their clock as we do at midnight. So at the sixth hour, 6 a.m., is when Jesus stood before Pilate. But the clock is is different, different sets of times, so you're aware of that. There's not a discrepancy in the Bible. But there are people that get hung up on that and say, must not be true because there's a detail out of place. But it's easily explained and easily understood when you look at that. I throw that out there just so you understand there are different details. And as you look at the harmony of the Gospels, and it does harmonize this whole story, you see the bigger picture of what is going on. You see here they wrote an accusation. And uh, they put that over the convicted. Usually, that's what it was. The those that hung there, they would uh, their crime that they had been convicted of or were accused of was placed over them, so that all could could see that. If you were a thief and you were being killed because you were a thief, or someone who who was a uh, caused insurrection somewhere, or a murder, or whatever, that accusation would be there. For Jesus, there was no sinful crime that they could find. Actually, Pilate could not find anything wrong with the man. All they could do is put the king of the Jews because that's really why he was being killed is because he had made himself as they said a king and yet he was the king and either he was uh, that accusation was was of, of a crime he committed by taking on something he wasn't or it was true and it's interesting that there is Jesus dying on a cross and the very title that is due him is right over his head it was written according to the other gospel writers in both uh the the jewish language hebrew it was written in uh, latin and also in greek so all those present those were the common languages all of those present could have seen exactly what that crime or what was being accused of jesus on that we come here to the death of christ and i didn't spend much time last week and about the crucifixion but we did talk about the scourging process and the scourging process was definitely something that uh, it, it was far greater and actually I had a discussion last week with Sam and he was talking about reading a, a devotional or an, you were talking about something about the difference between the Romans and the Jews on the scourging and I may have cha- changed some details that I wasn't aware of I, I always like to learn new things and I would love to learn from my son even you know or whoever else But the Jews were very adamant that when somebody was uh, stripes were laid to their back that you only could do 40 stripes. That's why they always did 39 so they wouldn't go above that. But the Romans actually would mock the Jews and in doing so, they would lay more stripes to someone's back if they weren't a citizen or or whatever. They were bound for certain things by law. But if you weren't a citizen of Rome, you weren't... uh, So it's very possible that Jesus suffered more than the 39 stripes but I can only imagine that just 39 whips to the back would do that and the details of that um, uh, they were they were such that this, the uh, lashes that would come around and slap around the sides sometimes would even disembowel the uh, person being be- beaten that means it would slice their belly right open and everything would come out that's how much Uh, that jesus would have suffered i don't he was not disemboweled he was still able to to walk and he was still able to be uh, compelled to go to golgotha after that but he would have suffered greatly during that scourging process we aren't fully aware of all that because it's not included as details of scripture it probably in the first century would have been common knowledge exactly what a crucifixion entailed And when you later come to Mark here, and he says in verse 25, now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. That's all he includes. He doesn't talk much more than that, other than they crucified him. And that, too, would have been an awful uh, form of punishment, an awful form of death. And crucifixions always resulted in death, okay? (laughs) For those that uh, propose a theory that Jesus did not really die, that rather he just looked like he was dead. They took his body down, put it in a cool tomb, and he revived. Uh, They have no understanding of what a crucifixion really was all about. And I say that with authority because there's no evidence anywhere in history that anyone ever survived a crucifixion that was meant for execution. There are the few cases that people come along afterwards and they purposely try to crucify themselves to show that they're paying for their sins and all that, but they didn't suffer like Jesus did, and they're always taken down off the cross before they they die. But as far as for execution, there was never any evidence somebody has survived that. You stayed on that cross until you expired, and whether that was minutes or hours or even days, some history reveals that, that certain People in the state of crucifixion lasted up to two days or three days in that condition, although it would be extremely rare. The, the The reason it would be extremely rare is many people suffered great blood loss in the chastisement process before that. Jesus would have suffered great blood loss as being uh, those stripes laid to his back, that crown of thorns put on his head, he would have suffered in that. And you can imagine as he goes up and then they nail him and they would purposely, the Romans said, I mentioned it, I mentioned it every time, they'd come up with a word for the pain called excrucio, out of the cross, and they would purposely choose the points in which they would drive the nails into the body to cause the most pain. And you have here in the carpal tunnel area of your your wrist, all the nerves that run to your hands and back and forth are right there in that bundle. You have that ulna nerve and the radial nerve. They both come through there. And when you drive a nail, and it's thought that's most likely the space. It's considered part of the hand. It would have been driven right there through the carpal tunnel. That also allows the bone itself that is part of the, the hand here, the wrist, to be able to suspend the rest of the body on those bones. If you did it up here, it would just tear. So most likely, Jesus was crucified, and the nails were placed just at the lower part of the hand into the wrist. And the pain, you can imagine, you know what it's like when you bump your, your what we call our funny bone, right? And, and you, you hit that nerve, and oh, it hurts, doesn't it, the whole arm? That's the same nerve, by the way. You can imagine it being crushed as the nail goes through that, the extreme pain that would take place in that. And the same is true for the legs or for the, the, the ankles, in that area of the heel. And people were crucified either with one hand laid, I mean, one foot laid over another, and then a nail driven down, a spike driven down through both. Or sometimes, as the cross piece is like this, the vertical sty that's there, the ankles would be placed on either side and nails would be driven so that they would be directly through the heels and into the sides of the cross. Either way, tremendous pain involved in that. And that's what Jesus would have gone through. And by the way, that was done after that piece was erected and that top piece was uh, already put on. They would put the person up and then they would nail their feet at that level. And so all this would be taking place, you can imagine the the, the sounds as that first you know, hammer blow goes in to whichever one. There were two convicts, one on either side of Jesus that were being crucified. Probably in good Roman fashion, they went out and they did it in an orderly way and they started with one of them. And as soon as that that nail would boom like that, there would be a scream that would just be what we would call a blood-curdling scream as someone was being executed. And then that would go and do all those. And most likely Jesus also would have experienced that kind of pain. The Jesus film, which is still around and has been around, it's based on the Gospel of Luke. And I think in the late 1970s that was put together. It's probably one of the best dramas still, and it's been translated into hundreds of languages. Um, And it's one of the best dramas uh, of the life of Christ and the death and all that. And when they come to that scene in the crucifixion of Christ, that's kind of how they, in the dramatic form, they do it. They get ready to put the nail in and the camera pans away and you just hear a scream uh, of pain and agony. It wasn't all sterilized as sometimes we picture it. We, we think too often maybe of the, the scene in the, on a stained glass window or a cathedral or something like that of a crucified Messiah, uh, a savior there. But it would have been an awful thing going on as people moaned and screamed in agony and as they suffered greatly. And yet Mark just says they crucified him. They crucified him. I want to look at that as we go down through this. Over the next hours, and it is hours. This is at 9 a.m. Now we go to noon. High noon. It is the time. And for three hours, people have mocked him and spit on him. And not only the Romans doing that. But those that were there to witness it, also the religious leaders, they were there. They're also mocking him and scoffing at him. All that's going on, it says, and he was numbered with transgressors. I'm so glad that Jesus was numbered with transgressors, my friends. And the picture there and the the writer, uh, the other gospel writers include some details. But there were two convicts on either side and they were, by one of their own admission... There, because they were sinners, they were there rightly facing what they deserved, whether as you agree with that or not, that's exactly what they were. Both of them reviled him, and yet we read in the other gospel writers that one of them looked to Jesus nearing the end of that and said, "Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus said, "Today you will be with me in paradise." One of them apparently Reached out in faith, and that's all he could do. He could not join a church. He could not give any money. He could not be baptized. He could not do anything. All he could do was call out in faith. And Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. And my friends, salvation is that easy. But Jesus was numbered with transgressors. He made his death the death of a sinner. And he was numbered with them. And I'm glad because... That's the gospel message that he who knew no sin took sin upon him and he was made sin for me and sin for you. And he took our place at the cross. And oh, the glory of that. And we have to understand that. And it says, those who passed by blasphemed him. Have you thought about that? That as they went by and they looked at him and they said that even some of their dialogue is there. And it says, they wagged their heads, saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days. And he says this, Save yourself and come down from the cross. You realize that's blasphemy. (laughs) It's blasphemy because he was the God of creation. The Bible says of Jesus Christ, in him all things consist. All things were made by him. Everything. You know, he is the one who is God the Son, who. Who left the glories of heaven. He came down to earth. He walked among us. And as John says. We beheld his glory. Even as the only begotten of the father. Full of grace and truth. And it was God the son. Who would go to the cross. And those that came by. And denied that. They were blaspheming against God. By mocking him. They were also blaspheming. In the very fact. They said come down from the cross. Jesus couldn't come down from the cross because the cross was the method in which God had chosen and foreordained that salvation or atonement for sin would be paid for. It would be on that cross. And until salvation was granted, until the atonement for sin was accomplished, which is only through death and only the death of a righteous person. The only righteous one that's ever come is Jesus. He's the only one that could do it. Until that was accomplished, Jesus couldn't come down from that cross. Because he willingly had gone there. You know, if you deny the death of Christ and deny the, even the blood of Christ and all that, it's blasphemy. Do you know that? That's a, that's a serious sin. To say that there's somehow salvation offered without the cross. It's blasphemy. That's why it's central to Christian doctrine. You cannot get away from it. It's in the scripture and it should not be... Uh, put off in a corner and say it's not important because it's absolutely important. Without it, you cannot be saved. And then it goes on, it says, Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes and said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Again, mocking the Lord. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Wow, isn't it something that people can stand right there and they could be staring at the very salvation being offered to them, someone dying in their place, and say, oh, come down from that cross. You can, if you really are a savior, you can save yourself. No. You know what? He willingly placed himself in that position that he might die in their place. And yet, even in the, in the midst of all the mocking and the scoffing and all that, Jesus would still have offered and extended forgiveness to them. So much so that later on in his closing dying words, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the heart of the Messiah, the heart of Christ. And I'm so glad for that. Well, you see these things, uh, they're going on. And by the way, uh, this is central to, like I said, to, to the Christian doctrine and you know, I'm glad because Jesus came and he made he numbered himself with transgressors. He gave himself for us who were spiritually impoverished. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul's later writing to the church at Corinth, and he reminds them of that, that the Lord Jesus came to our realm, To grant us spiritual richness, forgiveness of our sins, and even bringing us into his very family in that whole process. That's the death of the cross. Philippians puts it this way, Paul puts it this way in Philippians Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, he was, okay, he was God the Son, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 8. As I said before, you can't get away from that. (laughs) He gave himself to this, this cross, this way of death and all that so that he might save us. I'm so thankful for that. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Here, as Peter writes, and, and Peter sees, you know, had been there, when. remember, when Jesus was taken in the garden, and then he scatters, he runs away. We have him later, standing boldly and he's looking back and hindsight is off in 2020 he sees exactly what was being accomplished and there he realized that Christ's death was enough so that he only had to die once for sins not over and over again it's a good thing I need someone whose death is so perfect and his life is so perfect excuse me and his death would accomplish what we call justification the declaration of righteousness that is granted to those who will believe and trust in him It's that simple. It's all that simple. Simple for us, but yet uh, amazing what God did for us, right? Well, we see this misery of his death that would have accomplished. And by the way, as they drove those nails into his hands, into his feet, and as they erected that cross piece up into the hole that it would usually sit in in the ground, you can imagine what that would be like as you go from lying flat on the ground and they would put the cross piece together and then they would lift the person up and as they did so that would come down into the ground and everything would jar and at that point often the shoulders would come out of joint and the elbows and all that would come out of joint and in Psalm 22 it prophesies there a thousand years before the crucifixion that all my joints or all my bones are out of joint it says in that Psalm very important Psalm because we'll come back to that that Psalm 22 it very specifically talks about how Messiah would die. Very, very clear. Well, all that would be taking place, and you can imagine the, the pain that would be associated with just that. You'd imagine the pain in which it would be. And then, by the way, as a person is suspended that way, uh, as you're picked up like that, and then they nail your feet, to breathe in, you have to stand against the nails that are in your feet. And you have to lift yourself because you're in an exhaled position. Your diaphragm naturally is stretched that way. And so that's how you are in that. So to to breathe, you have to lift slightly. Try to do that very long, even without being crucified. And you know what? (laughs) Uh, You can't do it very long. And yet that's what Jesus did, not just for minutes, but hours. Hours as he agonized and as he uh, lifted himself against the nails to breathe. When it talks about him suffering for us, we don't get it sometimes really, how much he had to suffer. Well, that goes on, and it goes on until uh, the, the noon hour, then the six hour, and his physical sufferings at this point were almost over. Jesus has lost a tremendous amount of blood he's now going into shock, uh, his heart would be racing, his breathing would be panting the uh, all the effects of dying would be taking place when you're one of the things as you're dying in that process the exchange of air is very shallow and it's very hard and and carbolic acid builds up in your body and the cramping you ever run and you guys you're running you get a cramp that's that same effect that takes place and all the cramping that would have gone on all the things that would have been happening in his body and it's it's interesting that some have said why didn't jesus say more from the cross really he could not physically say much And there's only seven phrases that he uses from the cross. and That's that's it. And they're very important. Nearing the end of that is what he's feeling is his heart is racing. He's getting ready to die in the flesh. He's really going to die. And all this is taking place. Let's go to verse 33. And it says this back in Mark's gospel. And it says, Now when the sixth hour had come, this would be 3 p.m., okay, in our clock, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. and uh, uh, Sorry, noon to three. That's what I'm looking at. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's one of the seven phrases that Jesus uses from the cross. And if you want to know the others, you have to read the other gospel writers. Then there are other gospel accounts. And you read that. Now, some have said, well, why would Jesus say this? We'll get to this. I'm going to keep right now, I'm going to back it up a little bit and look at this idea of darkness. Darkness fell. We were talking about this um, this week because one of the Bible verses that the kids had to memorize this week was, be still and know that I am God. I like that. Be still and know that I am God. And... God was able to get a hold of people's attention. Various times he did that. But you know, at the crucifixion of Jesus it was a moment when he died, or just as he was dying, that darkness fell upon the earth. It was not something that um, was predictable. <laughs> uh, it wasn't an eclipse. Generally, in, even in ancient times, people could predict certain measure of, of the astronomical you know, events that took place because they, they were aware of the order of things around them. The way that the sun or appears to move. It's really the earth moving. And, and the moon and everything else. And actually we read earlier. Uh, it was on your verse. That was on the announcements uh, screen. And it was from Psalm 104 verse 19. And it says this of the Lord. He appointed the moon for seasons. And the sun knows it's going down. You know what that says? That, that says that we can count on those things. Because <laughs> God's the one that put them in, in perfect order. And, and I marvel at that. I, I tell you, I don't know how you could be someone who studies the heavens like an astronomer and not understand that there is someone who has he has, he has put it all together and he's the one that keeps it together and he's the one that makes it so perfect that it can we can figure out just using the language of mathematics how to go from somewhere like Cape Canaveral, Florida and then launch something up into the atmosphere, into space and have it... You know zip around the earth or whatever and go off into space and land right in the very spot it needs to land like on the planet mars some 18 months later or something like that or whatever it takes how can we do that because he sets things in order they're predictable i I could probably predict tomorrow that the sun is going to come up okay and that it will go down too and that I can look on, you know, we can look on our calendar, of course, but we can know when the moon will be full and when it will be new and when it will be waning and waxing and all those things because they're set. Who set them up? God did. The Bible says that right in the book of Genesis. And yet there's some times in Scripture where God made people be still and he used the things that are the, probably the most guaranteed thing in the world, the sun and the moon, and he says, I'm going to just cause darkness to come. Did so in Joshua's day. Remember the miracle there. Joshua's extra long day. Uh, but you come to the cross, and there is the cross. And by the way, Joshua, book of Joshua, he was in a war battle, and until the battle was accomplished, God even suspended the cosmos for a bit. <laughs> you say, is that possible? I mean, it is with God. He's the one who made it. When Jesus was hanging on the cross. And by the way, Jesus' Hebrew name is Yeshua, Joshua. (laughs) All right, that's what the word Jesus means. And there's Jesus, and he's in a greater battle. Not just the battle of some martyr, but he's a battle of salvation, the battle of forgiveness of sins. And there he's suspended on the cross. And until it was finished, God would continue to give light. And then sin would enter in, and he would be made sin for us. At that very moment, the sun wouldn't even shine. And you can imagine what that would have been like on that day as people stood there and all of a sudden darkness fell. Wow, that would get your attention. People would think this is it. What is going on? And there's a lot that the Bible describes or talks about in regards to darkness. I don't know anybody that would associate the, the darkening of the sun uh, as, a, as a good thing, especially if it would last that way. It'd be, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? I don't care what your worldview is. You'd say something's wrong something's wrong well do you know specifically in the scripture the darkness associated with the sun losing its light when god did it anyways miraculously was a sign of judgment it was a sign of judgment the book of amos we don't go to amos very often but amos chapter 8 verse 9 says and it shall come to pass in that day yet a future day of judgment says the lord god that i will make the sun go down at noon and i will darken the earth in a, in broad daylight You know, the Jews who were standing there and they were mocking him, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, they were standing there and they're mocking him. And all of a sudden it gets dark. I wonder how many have wondered, is this an Amos 8, 9 thing? We're in trouble. We're in trouble. Judgment is falling. And yet they didn't realize that judgment was falling not on them, but on him. He was being made sin for us and judgment was falling upon him. The very wrath of God was being falling on God himself because only God could withstand the wrath of God. And I, I just am amazed at that when I think of those things. Well, it might have also reminded them of another time in Israel's history in Exodus chapter 10. Remember the plagues in Egypt? If you know anything about the ancient Egyptians, they had... Uh, a pantheon of gods that they worshipped but the high god was what god anybody remember what you uh, you know was worshiping something ra yeah the sun right like king ramses all right his name means ra right in the beginning the high god is is ra the sun god and you know our god is so powerful that he controls all the elements. He controls everything. And when the Egyptians needed their worldview turned upside down, and they needed to be shaken up a little bit, and this guy named Pharaoh, who was king, that's what Pharaoh means, is is he's there, and he thinks he's a god on earth. That's really what the Pharaohs were taught, and that's what the people thought. All of a sudden, this ninth plague comes along, and it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven. That there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven. And there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another. Nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. You see the picture that's there? It was judgment upon Egypt. And even their high God, the high, what the, you know, he's not real, but the highest God, Ra, Ra couldn't do anything. Couldn't do anything. Because the Bible says that he is the first and he is the last, right? And apart from me, there is no God. He is the only Lord God. He is the one who is in control of all things. And he was able to put darkness in the Egyptians so bad they felt it. The Israelites had those accounts. They had the book of Exodus. And those scribes, their their entire life job was to take the word of God and to inscribe it. That's what it means, you know? They were to take it and make another when they were used to make another copy. That's what they specialized in. And so, back before you had photocopiers and computers and everything else and any printing presses and that kind of stuff, people meticulously would take the word of God and they would translate or transcribe it, as they as they put, and they would go to make a new copy and they would have to do it. And they took such diligence to do it. They were very, very careful. A, a Hebrew scribe to, that specialized in that part, to do that, they, first of all, would make sure that as they wrote it out they would ascribe a numeric value to each letter and each actually accent as well the jot and the tittle and they would make sure that there was a numeric value ascribed to that and they would uh go letter by letter you know verse upon verse chapter upon chapter they didn't have verses and chapters but you know they would do it in a scroll and they would do that whole thing and now picture this you got the the scroll of isaiah In our English Bible, 66 chapters. Okay, it's a long, long book. And then a scroll, it would have been quite big. And a scribe would go through and he would go one after the other after the other, making sure every letter was the same. He would get done and he would have to add up all those numbers. And if the sum of the numbers was different than the previous copy, there was a mistake somewhere. And you know what he'd have to do? Throw it out, burn it, start again. So they were pretty good. And making sure the word of God was taken from generation and generation and generation and it was preserved. And it was preserved perfectly. That's why I really believe that the scriptures, what we held today through careful translation into other languages and all that, is accurate. Very accurate. It's the word of God. It's the preserved word of God. And God is able to do that. And yet these same scribes who knew the word of God, some had spent probably countless hours, even going through Exodus and making sure that that scroll was preserved and they yet they failed to understand that darkness was now settling upon them as well and judgment was coming, judgment was coming God and his grace, wow I'm not getting very far here this morning but I want to go a little further here, look what it says Mark chapter 13 verses 24 and 25 we already covered this, Jesus prior to this says but in those days after that tribulation, he's talking about a future event The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the power of the heavens will be shaken. He's talking about a future time of judgment. All these things would have reminded those around the cross uh, that that judgment was impending. It was coming. And I'm so glad that Jesus did that for us. By the way, for the Christian, you know what he gives us? Hope. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8 says, For you were once darkness but now you are light in the Lord walk as children of the light because Jesus tasted the darkness for me I don't have to walk in darkness and neither do you Colossians says this he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love oh I love that and then first Peter chapter 2 verse 9 but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I'm so glad I don't have to be in darkness. I don't have to face spiritual darkness. I don't have to face the physical darkness. Do you realize that at death, that darkest moment of all of our lives, as, we, as a, that death approaches, you know what? I will go from this world as it's darkening and I will enter into the glorious kingdom of his his dear son, a kingdom of light. And the book of Revelation describes that place. And it's a place where it says there is no more need for the moon or the sun. doesn't say they don't exist, but you know what? There's no more need of them because the light of the Lamb is the light of heaven. And that's the book of Revelation, chapter 21, 22, talks about that. I mean, praise God for all those things. You know what? We'll move on here. And we read in Mark 15, verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that very moment, as the sins of all the world, all the evil things, all the things done in darkness, all the things that have caused pain were placed upon Christ, he felt that, that heaviness and weight of sin and really as some say the father turned his face away because he was made sin for us God cannot look on sin and yet God took sin (laughs) that's a mystery I can't fully explain in words I can just say this that Jesus tasted death for every man I only have to taste death for me but Jesus tasted death for everybody and in doing so you imagine the heaviness of that but some have said well you know all of a sudden God turned away there was no more God or something I don't know no, but I, I think there's something deeper here. As Jesus cried out, it says with a loud voice. He calls out. And he, he would have reminded people that that is a Bible verse, actually. That's a phrase found in the scripture. And if you go to, um, if you go to Psalms, Psalm 22, verse 1. And I've said Psalm 22 is key because it is the crucifixion written a thousand years before the crucifixion and it's one of the clearest prophecies in all the scripture and it begins with what my god my god why have you forsaken me so as jesus is there and he's dying and he gives out these these few phrases that that have come off his lips in a loud voice he cries out my god my god why have you forsaken me and those present who knew the scriptures they would have been reminded oh he's quoting from from the psalms What does that psalm say? And then reading down through it, it's all about the suffering Messiah, the crucifixion. And it points to Christ. He was fulfilling the scriptures right exactly, as they're foretold. Well, all that was taking place. And I'm glad that Jesus did that. He tastes death for us. And it says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. And that's First Peter 2.24. Oh, that's the, the great aspect of the gospel is that because he suffered, I don't have to suffer. But not only that, because he was made sin for, for us, I get the righteousness of Christ by faith. It's a transaction that takes place. And at salvation, we get his righteousness. Why? Because he was bruised for us. He suffered for us. His stripes were laid on him for us. Us. It's that simple. We read in Mark fifteen thirty seven, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he breathed his last, or he gave up the ghost. He released his spirit. John puts it this way, and he says, and when so when Jesus had received the sour wine and vinegar in the old English, he said. It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The final phrase that Jesus has from the cross is this word, it is finished. It is actually one word. And the word that was uh, written in scripture in the Greek is tetelestai. It means it is completely accomplished. It is finished. You can't get any more finished. (laughs) And that's the word that is used in this phrase, it is finished. You say, well, what is finished? The payment for sin. It was finished. As we read early, he died once for all. Doesn't have to do it over and over again. Doesn't have to to pay for my sins over and over again. He's done it. He paid for them. My past sins, my present sins, my future sins. And if you'll place your faith in Jesus Christ, you can have your sins forgiven. And he promises to do that. And then he died. The Bible says that. He gave up his spirit. And I like how it puts it in John. He gave up his spirit. When it comes to die, and I have to die someday, and you have to die, I don't really have much choice in when I die. I mean, I could. I could go out and stand in front of a big bus coming down the road, and, you know, that kind of speed things up. But you know what? I might might survive. Who knows? I don't know. That might be worse. But, you know, I really don't have choice of giving up my spirit. But Jesus did. When he gave up the non-material parts that he had, and he's just like the rest of us, non, he has flesh and bone right and blood and that's the physical the body and in the flesh he died but he didn't cease to exist and neither will you at death you don't cease to exist the non-material part the spirit that part that exercises itself toward God or away from God for the lost man you know what that spirit was released and uh, the soul, the soul is our is who we are, our, our conscience. All of that is part of the soul. But the soul and the spirit, I believe there's a difference. But the spiritual part of us, it will be released at death. Paul, the apostle says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's the promise of the believer. For the unbeliever, it isn't to be with the Lord. We read in Luke chapter 16 that the rich man died and in hell, he lifted up his eyes. He was in physical torment, in a lake of fire that never will be quenched. And that's the reality. The great realities that the scriptures lay out for us very clear and he doesn't God does not want anybody to perish. He says it is his will that none should perish but that all should come to repentance. I'm thankful that he he willingly, you know, he's willing that none should perish. He doesn't want us to go there. He's made a way of escape and that way is through Christ and his cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection. There was darkness over the whole land and there was this death that occurs in that whole process. And then, you know, lastly, and I just want to look at this, that we come to Mark fifteen thirty-eight, and it says, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And that was back there in Jerusalem. This is happening just outside the walls of Jerusalem and the veil in the temple, this approximately 70-foot-high curtain made out of thick uh, wool, a woolen garment almost, like it's a big heavy current. It was about six inches thick from what Josephus describes. It was torn from top to bottom. And that veil in the temple was part central to the Jewish religious system that God had patterned way back in Exodus, and, and then through the centuries it had continued on. And it was a veil that kept people out of the presence of God. Only the high priest could go in and offer a blood sacrifice once a year for the atonement of the people on the day of atonement. And all that would take place. And and really, that curtain said, stay out. But when Jesus died and he gave up his spirit, the curtain was torn open. He said, well, what's so important about that? Because there was a way made into the very presence of God. And he even miraculously showed that to people. you know there's a way to the very presence of God today? And again, it's through Jesus Christ. There's no need now to stand on the outside of the veil. But now, as the book of Hebrews says, we can boldly go to the very throne of grace. We can boldly go. Oh, I'm glad for that. And then we see what that led to. That would have been a sign to the Jews. But there was a Gentile there. Psalm 22 says, dogs have compassed me round about. That's what it says in Psalm 22. And I've mentioned that dogs were a derogatory reference to the Gentiles. That's what the Jews called them. They didn't like the Roman occupiers and they called them dogs. And maybe that's a direct reference to that. But there were all, well could have been stray dogs and others licking up the blood of those that were dying. That could have been true as well. But you know this this dog, this Roman, this centurion. He's not part of Israel. He he hasn't known the scriptures probably from a child he hasn't been taught those things he hasn't sung the psalms he's just a soldier and he's there he's most likely the captain of this unit that is crucifying christ he centurion the century is in the root word he was a ruler or an authority figure over a hundred probably a hundred men and as he's standing there And he's waiting for this execution to take place. He's doing his due diligence, his duty to Rome. And he's watching this guy die. Probably not his first crucifixion if he's a captain, all right, a centurion. He's probably seen this done a lot in his career. But there's something different about this death. Something he's never seen before. He sees this man and he hears him and he watches him suffer. He watches him die. He's seen the whole thing. And you know what it says here? He stood opposite him. And he saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last. And he said this, truly this man was the son of God. This Gentile who even didn't even have any place in Israel. By grace, he sees what's going on. And he professes with the mouth what he believes in the heart. Which is, this is the son of God. And my friends, you're probably a Gentile. (laughs) I'm a Gentile. And you know, I, I am so thankful that Christ revealed himself to me along the way. He did so through his word. And I too can profess and confess with my mouth that he truly is the son of God. If you haven't done that by faith, you need to. You need to. And today, you go from death and darkness into the light of his kingdom. It's that simple. Let's pray. Father, I look to you again in thanksgiving. We have gone down through this passage and as i think about it there's so much more really that we could talk about here but yet as we try to take it in all those hours that jesus hung on a cross all those hours where people watched him suffer and yet it wasn't just because he was doing it for a cause he was doing it for the very fact that sin needed to be paid for thank you that the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life through jesus christ our lord and again, I just, I just beg today that if there's anyone here who's a stranger to you, that has not placed their faith in you, that today, even before leaving this room this morning, they would bow their heart before you and they would acknowledge that very fact that you truly are the Savior, the one who took our sin, and you ra- were raised the third day victorious over sin and death. Thank you for such great hope and promises and things that we can stand on today. In Jesus' name. Amen.